book of Titus, chapter 2. We've been taking a break this summer um, from our study through Genesis, and we're looking at some of our core values as a church. And today we're going to be dealing with the core value of grace consciousness. That means that we are very conscious that everything we do flows out of a heart of thankfulness for what God has done for us in Christ on the cross. So I figured the best passage, if I could pick one to do that with, would be Titus chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 15 in particular, but we will read the chapter for context. It's not very long. And um, if there's one thing I hope you will remember someday when the Lord takes me or takes me from here is that you must keep scripture in its context. I hope you, that will haunt you. Pastor Santo always said. All right, good. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Titus is a pastor, and um, Paul is one, his discipler and send, the one who helped send him out. And so he writes these things to Pastor Titus. Hear the word of God to you. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but, teach, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now here's our text. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May you bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, in his excellent book, that we highly recommend here at New City AC. Merciful. Randy Neighbors writes this. I love the way he puts this. He says, hope is an engine that helps people to endure horrible pain 
and struggle. It will see them through when all, the, all those around them would surrender and give up. Not only is hope an engine to help people keep going, even in the midst of poverty, but the gospel message itself is life transforming. I love that because it's not only true of the poor, right? It's true of all of us. And I love that hope is like an engine. That's, it's driving us. It's the power that keeps us going. And the gospel is the very thing in and of itself that transforms us. See, this is important to know this, Christianity 101. The law is holy. In case you didn't get that memo, it's good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. We're sinful. So the law can tell us what God demands of us. It can tell us what God requires. But you know what the law can't do? It can't help us do it. The law does not empower us to do that. It can only point out where we fall short. Yeah, you should have done that. Yeah, you were supposed to do that. Oh, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. That's what the law does. On the other hand, we have the gospel. And the gospel gives what the law demands. The gospel works in us through the grace of God so that, and it empowers us so that we actually begin more and more to walk in the ways and the will of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the difference between the two? It's very important to see this. In Titus 2, 11 to 14, this is really cool. The Apostle Paul tells us, this is really neat, how the gospel works to transform us into people, listen, who say no to ungodliness and yes to an upright and godly life. Now, here's, I want to show you something that's really cool. That it, Sometimes we don't think about this. This letter, along with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's a unique letter because it's not written to the people of God in general. Did you know that? We're all so self-centered. We think, this is to me. No, it's not. These letters are to pastors. But the cool thing is, it's public. It's not like the secret meeting of the pastors, and we only talk about these, these secret things that we know in the rest of the world. No, this is actually, we get to come in, and we get to eavesdrop on what the Apostle Paul tells Titus, how to so teach and preach the gospel in the congregation that it empowers the people of God to do God's will, to do what is good to walk in the ways and the will and the law of our holy and righteous God, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So, this is why context is so very important. In chapter 2, for instance, Paul explains to Titus what he should teach to different groups in the church, in case you didn't catch that. He deals with what? Older men, older women, young women, young men, and then it's really interesting, he throws in there what? Slaves. So we have age groups in the church and, men, and the sexes, and then all of a sudden slaves get thrown in, which is interesting. But it goes to show you that was a very real issue in the church in Roman times, wasn't it? And by the way, real quick, slavery in Roman times was not exactly the same kind of slavery that we had in this country, just so you're aware of that. It was more of Roman and everybody else. When Romans would conquer another, another uh, people, they would be their slaves, number one. Number two, it was an economic thing. So it didn't matter your skin color, didn't matter your ethnic background. If you owed somebody money, we didn't have like, you know, interest on a credit card. 
you would have to sell yourself to that person for a certain amount of years until you paid off the debt. And slaves back then could be doctors, dentists, lawyers, by the way. So just so you know, so, but it, it still was a very less than ideal situation, but nonetheless, it was a situation that God's people had to deal with. So the gospel comes and speaks to that, that group of people as well. So in verses 1 to 10, he tells Titus, listen, this is important, what gospel living should look like for older men in the church. What gospel living should look like for older women in the church. This is the ideal. Uh, so he says this, these are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Now, why would he write that? Because Paul knows, other than Jesus, Paul knew better than anybody else that people in the church were going to do what? They're going to kick back on this teaching. They weren't going to necessarily, so you, know, you go to a slave and say, you know what, I want you to, your unjust master, I want you to do whatever he says. You think he's going to be like, yay, I was so lifted up Sunday morning. You think that's going to happen? Or go to a, to a young wife and say, you need to submit to your husband and love your children and be busy at home. Say that in public. Put that on your Facebook this morning. <laughs> of course, with the young men, what do we usually hear with young men? Oh, boys will be boys. Paul says, not in the kingdom. Boys will be self-controlled, and they will show that King Jesus is their king and that the Holy Spirit is living inside them. Don't be afraid to tell them that. And I think it's pretty, I got to say this because it's just, it's glaring in the text. It's interesting. He says, tell the older men this. Tell the younger men this. Tell the older women this. And when it comes to younger women, what does he say? The older women will tell the younger women. <laughs> Did you catch that? That's the one group. Titus says, don't touch it. Uh, uh, Paul says to Titus, you know what? This, this is a job. This is a job for the older women who have experience and they'll hear it better. And it's interesting, so the older women are to teach, notice they are to teach the younger women, that's the group they're to teach, and notice what else, this is important, they're not to teach them the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews, what are they to teach them? Love their husbands, love their children, and be keepers at the home, just saying. So now what's the secret weapon? that Titus has, because this is a tall order. I would be like, if Paul gave me these commands, and of course he does through this, um, thanks, Paul, and how in the world am I supposed to do this? Well, the answer comes, obviously, in verses 11 to 14. God's secret weapon is the gospel of God's grace shown to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because here's the good thing that Titus has going for him and that all pastors have going for them of true biblical Christian churches. And that is the gospel is already at work in God's people transforming them more and more into the image of Jesus. So we have a holy helper. The Holy Spirit's in there internally working on the people while externally we are teaching them the word of God. And that's a great encouragement. Because here's the issue, whether you're a slave, an older man, a younger woman, etc., young man, if you've truly come to faith in Christ by the grace of God, then here's the really cool thing. That this is what the word that Paul uses here. You are under the tutelage of grace. 
You know, I want a life coach. Ever hear that? Well, guess what? If you're a Christian, you already got a life coach. And his name is Grace. And you are under his tutelage. No longer under the tutelage of the law. You're under the tutelage of grace. Now, last week I quoted from a U2 song and I, I, I kind of critiqued it a little bit, maybe a lot. And so this morning I'm going to quote one more time from U2. And this is from Bono, the lead singer. It was an interview that he did with Anthony DeCurtis in 2001. And for those of you who did hear last, ser last week's sermon, this quote may help you understand the lyrics from the song I quoted last week. If not, go online, you can listen to it. But this is what Bono says in an interview. The most powerful idea that's entered the world in the last few thousand years is the idea of grace. Interesting. But then he says this. This is powerful too. It's the reason I would like to be a Christian. Though, as I said to you 2 guitarist The Edge one day, I sometimes feel more like a fan than rather actually in the band. You follow this? I can't live up to it. But the reason I would like to is the idea of grace. It's really powerful. Isn't that interesting? He's not in the band, but he acknowledges that grace is the most powerful thing in the universe. And we should pray for him that he joins the band. And I don't mean you too. I mean the Christian band. And the cool thing is, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know from personal experience how powerful the grace of God really is because you're not just a fan. You are in the band. And you are a true follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has changed your life forever. Can I get an amen? So when Titus is encouraging and rebuking with all authority, he's doing so to people who are already under the transforming power of grace. And that's good news for us pastors. We're like, shoo. So this is what Paul says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So here's, I'm going to boil down the message for you this morning. And here's what it is. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches and empowers us to live godly lives here and now in light of the pa its past and future appearing. It's a long one, so I'm going to say it again. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches and empowers us to live godly lives here and now in light of its past and future appearing. I'll break it down. We're going to see four things. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God teaches us. The grace of God will appear again. And last of all, the grace of God empowers us to do what is good. Hallelujah. So let's look at the first one. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now it's hard to miss, even if you just have this uh, really quick reading of the text, it's hard to miss that Paul points out in this text Two appearings. You notice the grace of God, what? Appears. And then later he says, we await for what? The appearing. And in the Greek, it's that cool word, epiphany. So we've got two epiphanies going on. The one epiphany is the appearing of grace that has appeared to all men 
And then we'll see in a couple moments that grace, the glory that we're actually waiting to appear when our great God and Savior comes back the second time. So what is this first appearance of grace? He calls it, notice, the grace of God that brings salvation. So we know what that grace of God is, don't we? It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is God's unmerited favor to us. That's when he appeared. He appeared what? His birth, his life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. It's not that grace was never here before. We know. We've been studying Genesis. It's been here. But in the person and the work of Christ, it has come fully in all its glory. It has shined upon men. Now, what is grace, of course? We use the word so often, I like to break it down. I like to just give its definition instead of just saying grace, grace, grace. And it's not, let's say grace before a meal. Whenever anybody says that, I say grace. Now, can we give thanks? Grace is God's unmerited, or put it another way, unearned, or maybe one other way, undeserved favor. Very important on that, but particularly shown to us in the cross of Christ. It's interesting. I just read this, this uh, a couple days ago, maybe yesterday. In Italian, you have the name crocefisa, which means cross. And this one young lady, when she came to America, they changed her name to Grace. And somebody asked, how is Grace the, the English equivalent of cross? And I said, simply, that's simple. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where God's grace is the most demonstrated to the world. It's God saying, you deserve hell, but instead, I'm going to give you my son. He's going to take hell for you. It's free. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. And Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. Listen to this. This is beautiful stuff. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Did you hear that? Is that like the coolest thing in the universe? When you, when you, you, know, you kind of slink into God's presence and, and he says, oh, I'm not going to count that against you. I don't know about you, but I'm like free at last. Right? And then he says this in verse 21. God made him. This is how God cannot count it against you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No greater news on planet earth than that right there. And if you don't believe that yet, pray to the Lord that he will open your eyes. Lion, the witch, the wardrobe, you all know it. Mr. Beaver is explaining the bondage that Narnia was in because of the white witch. Right, everything's frozen, there's snow on the ground, it's snowing, no, and, and he says this. I think either Mr. Beaver or Mrs. Beaver says to the, to the children, always winter and never Christmas. Can you imagine that? But then all of a sudden, something weird started to happen. The sleds started skidding and they couldn't kind of slide easy anymore. And you saw the trees were melting. And you know what happened? Aslan is on the move. Jesus came to Narnia and he's reversing the curse. Grace appeared. And so, and even in our world, can you imagine a world without Christmas? I couldn't. 
The hymn, Joy to the World, speaking of Christmas, puts it this way. Even though it wasn't originally written for Christmas, just so you know. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. I love this line. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Isn't that awesome? I think it is. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and we all say, hallelujah. But notice what this grace that has appeared to all men, notice what it does. It does something in particular, and that's my second point, and it's very important. It's not long, but it's powerful, this point. The grace of God teaches. Did you know the grace of God is an instructor? Look at verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the Greek word for teaches here comes, it actually conveys the idea of a tutor or a trainer. And Paul is saying that we are under the tutelage of God's unmerited favor in Jesus. And notice what it does. It teaches us to say no to some things and yes to other things. Did you see that in the text? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So here's the point that I think we need to see. Far from leading us to loose living or to lax morals, the fact that instead of giving us what our sins deserve, punishment and wrath, God gave us the very thing we didn't deserve, salvation, so free in Jesus, it trains us, listen, this is important, it trains us to say no to the vain things that charm us most and to sacrifice them to the blood of Jesus. Not to give in to our worldly cravings. So listen, anyone who tells you, and this is important to know that, that grace means you're free to indulge your sinful nature and that under grace, God doesn't care how you live. They are wrong. They are sinful And here's the main thing. They have not understood grace themselves. Grace is never a license. People, we understand, those of us who came out of legalism, we understand the law can't save us. God has saved us from legalism. Don't do this, don't do that. This list of rules, amen. But did you know the gospel is a middle way that also condemns antinomianism? It means anti-law means this whole idea that we're free to sin. What does Paul say in other places? You are free, but do not use your freedom as what? A cover-up for evil. Right? And notice what the gospel does. It teaches us to say no. And the the really interesting thing, it says that the positive thing that we are to do, it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? When are we to do this? in this present age. Which the interesting thing is, that means right here in this evil, wicked, present age, where guess what? Evil's called good, and good's called evil. So when you live like this, you're going to be the odd man out. Get used to it. Don't be shocked. Don't try to change your message so it fits in with the crowd that is on the broad road that leads where? To destruction. That's exactly what Jesus saved us from.
It's very interesting when you look at the, and this is the first time I ever saw this study in the text. When you look at the verses before, and that's why we read them. Did you notice as he teaches, tells Titus to teach each group in the church how they should live, there's one common word that's used for each and every one of those lists. Guess what it is? Self-control. Notice that. The young men, the older men, the older women, the older women are to teach that to the younger women. It's self-control. Because if the Spirit of God is filling you, it doesn't lead you to ecstasy, crazy experiences. You know what it leads you to do? To be self-controlled. To put to death the cravings of the sinful nature and to live under righteousness. More and more as we grow in the grace that teaches us and instructs us. And so it's really interesting here that Paul puts our feet firmly on the ground. Right here, right now. Because often as Christians we are criticized for what? Uh, Being so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. But yet, what does the text say? Feet on the ground and your eyes are where? There's actually two places we're going to see in a moment. Your eyes are behind to the grace of God that has appeared. And now we're going to see that our eyes are also ahead to what? When the grace of God comes, appears the second time to come and deliver us. And that's where we're going to see our our third point. The grace of God not only teaches, the grace of God that brings salvation will appear again in the future. Listen to this. This is the second epiphany in the text. Look at verse 13, second appearing. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, just so you know this, this is one of the clearest spots in the entire New Testament where we see Jesus is called God himself. It's the definite article, the great God and Savior, our great God and Savior. Not our great God and our great Savior, but one person, our great God. And all of the word, the word that's used for epiphany here is used ten times in the Bible of Jesus. Sometimes of his first coming, sometimes about his second coming. But each and every time, it's about Jesus. Not Jesus and the Father, just Jesus. So here, we are waiting for God in the flesh, second person of the Holy Trinity. And that very same great God and Savior who appeared over 2,000 years ago will appear again this time in glory (laughs) and majesty and power and authority. You know what, what John the Baptist preached when he first started preaching? You remember what John the Baptist preached? He's coming with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. You remember? And then when that didn't happen, he was like, uh, Jesus, can, is there somebody else coming? <laughs> no. It's just that was his first coming. In his second coming, that is how he's coming. He came as a lamb. He's coming back what? As a lion. The lion of Judah. And so Paul's explanation of how grace teaches us to live here and now is firmly sandwiched between those two momentous events, the first appearing of God's grace displayed in Christ and his second appearing. So that means it's super important, as I mentioned before, we have to keep our eyes on the prize even as we are living seemingly mundane lives here and there, carrying out our ordinary responsibilities that God calls us to carry out. So D. Edmund Hebert puts it this way. Listen, this is powerful. He who eagerly awaits the return of the Savior will be eager also to further his cause by good works until he comes. 
you know, whistle while you wait, work. No, this is work while you wait. Do good works that God created beforehand for you to walk. And that's all over this epistle, by the way, is that we should be devoting ourselves to doing what is good. It's worth waiting for. It's worth walking in self-control and godliness here and now while we wait. See, that's the issue. So many things in life, you ever notice there are things that you wait for and they finally happen, you couldn't wait, and then it happens, and then what? Ugh, I waited for that. Welcome to this side of glory, right? More, more you know, where's the beef? That's a disappointment. Um, every once in a while in life, sometimes it'll come, kind of live up to what you were looking for, but here's the thing. God is saying, I promise you that the second coming of Jesus is going to be something <laughs> that you have never seen before, and that you, you, it'll be so majestic, so awesome, you'll be so thankful when you look back, oh, thank you, Jesus, that I live for you and not myself. That I let people laugh at me. That I took the abuse. That other people said, man, why are you listening to him? You don't got to listen to him. But notice this. This is the last thing. We don't only eagerly await his appearance in great glory. We also continue to remember his incredible atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because Paul's not done yet. Because here's the point. That's what empowers us. This is so important. To live godly lives right here and right now in the midst of a fallen, broken, upside-down world. You ever see Stranger Things? They talk about the upside-down world. Isn't that what it is? Something like that? This is the upside-down world, I hate to tell you. It ain't right. But King Jesus came to make it right. And he's going to make it totally right. But in the meantime, we're going to see the grace of God that brings salvation empowers us to do what is good. Now, if you haven't listened to anything else, I hope you'll listen to this. Because this, is, this made me jump out of my skin this past week. Notice what he says in verse 14. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The one who's coming back in glory, this is important, and it's super important to you if you know Jesus, is the very same God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. That means, listen, the God who's coming to judge the quick and the dead the God who's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand, he's the God who shed his blood to save you from your sins. He's the God who took that punishment so on that day you don't have to be separated and cast out. You know why we have gang violence, violence right? You know why kids join gang, gangs? Because they want to belong to something. You know that, right? They want to be a part of some type of brotherhood. Well, here is the most powerful thing. God is saying, telling us that Jesus redeemed us. He shed his blood for us. He, and, and technically, this is what Paul says. He gave himself up for us so that what? We would be his very own people. So that we would belong. We're not on the outside looking in. We're on the inside. By grace, something that law could never do, God has done by sending his own son. 
Now, one of my favorite questions to ask teams when they come, I have a talk I like to give, is I, I, I like to ask them, why did Jesus die? And, you know, we get a list. He died for our sins. Amen. He died to reconcile us to God. Amen. And then I, my, my favorite one is 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Another one, right? Well, right here we got another reason. Jesus died. And it tells us he died to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, you want to see a gospel engine that empowers us right now to live godly lives. That's it. That's it. John Stocker in the 1700s wrote this song called the mercy, Thy Mercy, My God. Listen, it's powerful. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Now, here's the line. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Isn't that an awesome line? That's it. The grace of God alone has won our affections. We love him more than any, any other. He is worth any sacrifice, and it doesn't even look like a sacrifice to us. So it doesn't matter what we have to give up to have him by faith is worth any of that. I'm for Jesus. You know, what's that, uh, that song? Though none go with me, I still will follow. I'll never forget that story about President Lincoln and that there was a, a young lady who was being sold in the slave market. There was bidding going back and forth and Abraham Lincoln decided he was going to join the bid and he won. And she goes, okay, so now what are you going to do? You know? And he said to her, you can go wherever you want. She goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I could go wherever I want. He said, yeah, you're free. Go wherever you want. I could do whatever I want. Yes, you could do whatever you want. I, I, right now, I can go anywhere I want. He goes, yes. Where do you want to go? You know what she says? I want to go with you. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but I know it's a true story about Jesus. Because Jesus said, you are free. Remember the 10 lepers he healed? He just healed them all. Who came back? One. The one came back and said, I'm with you. I'm with you. Anybody ever see that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Well, spoiler alert if you haven't. I'm sorry. The whole idea of the movie is that this poor woman, her other sons have all died in the war. She had one son left. And so the, this captain and his crew had one job. That was to get to Private Ryan to let him know the war was over for him. He was allowed to go home and rejoin his mother so that she would have one son left. Remember that story? And so the one captain, they go through all kinds of stuff in the middle of the war, have casualties, and the captain at the end 
toward the end, when he, they, they found Private Ryan, they're bringing him back, they were attacked, and the captain got shot or, or had shrapnel, and he was dying. And his last words to, to Private Ryan, you remember what they were? He said, earn this. And then he breathed his last. Last scene of the movie, Private Ryan's an old man, has his own family, nice big family. He goes in front of the grave of that captain. And he says, I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned it. And then he says to his wife, am I a good man? He says, tell me I'm a good man and that I've lived a good life. It's very emotional, isn't it? Theologically awful. <laughs> totally wrong. And it was wrong for the captain to say that. You could never earn that. You can't earn somebody's life that they gave for you. And particularly, we could never earn, and Jesus never says, I died for you. Now earn it. It's a contradiction in terms. Grace is a free gift that we cannot earn. So I got another movie, not as realistic, not as, you know, war, not about war. It's called Iron Man. Yeah, I, I knew you'd laugh on that one. I, I, your tears will dry up now. But it is cool because Tony Stark, this is Iron Man 1, he gets taken uh, captive uh, by basically some thieves. I think he's in the Middle East somewhere. And this older gentleman saves his life. The older gentleman's talking about this family he's got to get back to. And, and fast forward, the older gentleman also is on his deathbed. He saved Tony Stark's life. And he says, no, Tony goes, no, I, I got to fix you up. You got to go see your family. And the older man goes, they're already dead. I didn't tell you that. And I will go see them. But then on his deathbed, right before he dies, he says a theologically accurate thing. <laughs> he looks at Tony in the eyes and he says, don't waste your life. Because Tony, first Tony says to him, thank you for saving my life. And he says, don't waste your life. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says, Jesus says, I have freed you. The Son sets you free, for you are indeed. I have redeemed you. You are mine. Don't waste your life. Do good. And the beautiful thing is, look, look at this. This is what I'll close with. You notice what kind of people God makes for himself through the redemption that came through the cross? A people who are what? Eager to do what is good. Law can't do that for us, can it? Cannot change our hearts. The gospel, through the grace of Jesus, works in our hearts so that it's not we just do by dutiful, uh, for dutiful reasons what God says. We do it with great eagerness. That's why some people say, man, you're like a Jesus freak. You're a fanatic. And we say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Any suffering in this life is a light, momentary suffering compared to the glory that's going to be revealed when our blessed, the blessed hope returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the transforming power of your gospel. That whether it's at work, at home, at play, 
It creates in us hearts that are eager to do the very things you call us to do for our own good, for your glory, and the salvation of others. Thank you for the gospel. And Lord, may we more self-consciously live lives out of the hope of your return and the faith in what you did for us to redeem our souls from all wickedness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.